Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in, it's David Summers. Here we go, hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now, let's step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how you been, man? I've been good. Been good. Uh, doing very good, uh, Dave. Uh, had a uh, little uh, out-of-town visit this last weekend. Uh, uh, kind of uh, not the greatest of things, but uh, but uh, it, uh, it it was really well, well done, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. You're, uh, of course, you're talking about you, you flew down to Florida, which is usually a good thing to fly to Florida, but this was for a memorial for your b- beloved mom, of course. Right. Yes. And uh, she had died on the 9th of December, but uh, we waited until after Christmas uh, and uh, had a memorial for her. And I saw a lot of family members, a lot of people I hadn't seen in a long, long time. And uh, wow, this, the entire ceremony and the service was beautiful. Really beautiful, and uh, so you know um, that that was that was a it was a good and a little hard weekend in a way, but uh, but a very good one, and uh, you know I'm uh, really uh, gonna miss her, but wow, she's in a better place, my man. Right? Oh, for sure. And how's how's brother Rob doing? Uh, Rob was having a little more trouble with it than me, I tell you, man. But uh, oh, no. but he's doing fine now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're all on the same page and, uh, well, just, uh, got to looking forward to today's show, man. Wow. we got a good one. You know, you always find a way to stay busy. And I think that's probably the best thing that you could do, especially lately. And especially after a weekend like that. So listen, your last stud cast, Ron exploded your already huge audience. No doubt about it. What was happening to you back in 1979 is absolutely captivating, not only to fans, but listen to me as well. I'm really intrigued by this, and it's only the beginning. So I don't think you ever talked in depth until now about just how difficult things became for you and your Southeastern Wrestling Companies right from the start of 1979. It had to be devastating, especially after the huge success your two territories experienced in 1978. So... I'm guessing that is why the title for this episode, Gulf Coast Booker Search, kind of grabbed me right away. So can't wait to hear about this. 
Well, yes, man. I, I've been kind of reliving my family's wrestling history in every studcast. Every week, Dave, for, think about this, man, for more than five years. And, uh, and now we've reached the year of 1979 which is basically the most critical year in my career. And uh, it may have been 44 years ago, but it's still riveting wrestling history, man. And, uh, and it's a type of history that few in the sport ever experienced. Not all, very few promoters ever experienced the, the year like I had in 1979. And this ride that I've been sharing for 283 episodes now is about to become very personal, man, and turn into a real-life drama for me. Beyond anything I could have ever expected. <laughs> Almost everything in the year of 1979 for me tested my strength, man, and my commitment to the sport that my family members, you know, had given their lives to. And I also, it also kind of forced me to examine myself when close friends and associates uh, turned their back on me in the name of greed, man, of all things. So this, these upcoming stud casts covering my history during 1979 are going to take us into another dimension, man. Far beyond just describing cards and TVs like we normally do, we're going to be riding into what makes men tick, man, and the unthinkable things that are hidden inside them, myself <laughs> included, man. I found out a lot about myself in 1979 as well. Well, I bet you did. All right, so it sounds like to me these studcasts are, are about to reach a level where podcasts rarely go. From just sharing information and stories to the examination of what we're all about. So where do we ride today? Where do we head first? North, south, east, west? What are we going to do? All right, man. We're, we're going to cover both territories. We're going to be talking about the third week of January, 1979. Southeastern Knoxville's card was headlined by the return of that $10,000 Battle Royal tag match last week. We had the big Battle Royal there. And a wild, wild one, uh, the last tag match for the money was really wild uh, because it had two sets of diametrically different partners, man. And uh, so that match had to be stopped. And it was uh, between uh, the returning Bob Armstrong, his first time back there in almost a year, and his partner from Ring One uh, was a uh, making his first appearance. It was a 450-pound crusher Blackwell, man. Wow, big boy. And uh, they ended up in ring one. They ended up wrestling against ring two's last two guys, which was Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. That ain't a combination that fits very well either. So so there was also a, a cage match on that card. Uh, we'll talk about that. Southeastern Tag Championship match. Very unusual eight-man elimination match on that card. And the winner was going to get 3000 We'll discuss the TV. We'll talk about the, the TV that promoted the card, the results of the card. We'll talk about the attendance, too. And uh, then we'll hit Southeastern Gulf Coast uh, for its card, its TV, and results. And uh, we'll be taking a look at the Booker search. That uh, This this uh, this actual stud cast, that's the name of this one, for Southeastern Gulf Coast and all it demanded <laughs> in the and then Doomsday 1979 segment, man. Hopefully, we'll have time for another learning tree after we get done with all that, man. All right. So we'll see what happens. So it really sounds like another loaded ride, Ron. So where do you want to start today? 
Well, we started off today with some of the Doomsday 1979 information just a second ago. So why don't we go back there and, and begin with the title of this studcast, which I think you already mentioned was Gulf Coast Booker Search. And uh, let's begin with kind of a short recap of where we were with the last studcast. And it, it might help those people that might have missed that last episode to catch up. And for those that didn't miss it, it's going to, I think, to refresh their memory a little bit about what we talked about in the last studcast. So obviously, Robert was leaving southeastern Gulf Coast as its booker with a very short notice. Uh, it was approved by me after a discussion with my father about what was going on and uh you know, wasn't very happy about it, but uh, it, it was the right thing to do, I think. And he was going to take over, Rob, the booking job in the struggling Memphis Territory, which was owned by my father and Jerry Jarrett. And my father had recently inherited my grandfather Roy's half of the very large Tennessee Territory that Roy built over a 50-year period back in those days. Uh, and uh, Roy had just died. Uh, Jerry Jarrett had been running Roy's western side of the territory, known as the Memphis Territory, for years. Memphis was a major town. That's why I got the nickname, the Memphis Territory. And uh, Nick Goulas, Roy's partner, other partner, uh, for more than 40 years, had been handling the eastern side from the office in Nashville. That's where the office had been for many, many years. And so Jared and Goulas had a horrible business relationship for years. The, these two guys... Once Roy died, it was it, it was a difficult situation, you know, and only Roy's influence basically, I think, had maintained the stability of the situation between the two. So with Roy's death and my father's inheriting his stock, dad had inherited a very bad situation as well with problems between the other two associates, a territory that was split in half, and it was suffering. Uh, that territory was really down on both sides of it as a result. So my Southeastern territories were both on fire back in those days. Uh, we were filled with talent. My gosh, we had great wrestlers. But my father having a better relationship with Jarrett than he had with Nick Goulas, he had talked Jerry Jarrett into hiring my brother Robert as a new booker for the Memphis territory. Territory was down. So was Goulas's side of the, the, the Tennessee territory. So in the last Studcast, I had just found out that my brother and the present Gulf, who was my present Gulf Coast booker, was starting as the booker in the Memphis Territory. And he was starting on the following week after this program we're going to talk about today. On Monday, January 21st, 1979, he was going to be in Memphis as the booker in that territory. One week for the matches we're going to talk about in this studcast. So it really kind of put me, man, in a bad situation, obviously. Uh, I could not go back down to the southeastern Gulf Coast because I had concerns about my Knoxville booker, who was Bob Rube, and I wanted to keep an eye on him. I wanted to see how he handled business. I had been gone in the south and down in Gulf Coast uh, since Rube had come there, basically, and I had not had a chance to see how he handled business. Bob Armstrong could have possibly stayed there, but he had been promised that he could come back to Knoxville and be closer to his family that lived uh, just outside Atlanta, Marietta, Georgia, uh, and rather than make those long trips down to the Gulf Coast. And, uh, and I, was, I told him I, that's what we were going to do after he'd been there about a year, and I wasn't going to break my word to Bob, man. And, uh, 
And I certainly wasn't going to send him back to book in the Gulf Coast Territory. So basically, that's where we are now, man. Uh, we desperately needed a booker for the southeastern Gulf Coast, and we needed him immediately. All right. So, man, that's a that's a horrible situation to be put into. So I'm going to see if I've got all this right. You didn't want to tell your father no, that he couldn't take your brother as his booker. You were obligated in southeastern Knoxville, and you couldn't take back your promise to Bob Armstrong to bring him home after that first year in Pensacola. So so, so here we are with today's Studcast title, Gulf Coast Booker Search. So the elephant in the room or the $10,000 question, what did you do? Well, man, I'd been doing a lot of thinking, obviously, about all this for for at least a week. But I'd only known for about a week that Rob was leaving. So uh, so since Rob had told me uh, and my father, uh, we'd had that conversation with my father. A day later after I talked to Rob, I called my dad, you know, and uh, and, and it, it was kind of a bad conversation because uh, it wasn't the type of way you were supposed to hire a booker. Uh, it should have been speaking to the owner of the company. The owners of the companies worked out these type of deals. And luckily, I'd been in the business at this point for nine years. And I personally knew a lot of bookers. Uh, from Tom Bernesto, uh, who was the first booker I ever worked with in the Georgia Territory in 1970. He was one of the original assassins. Him and Jody Hamilton were the great assassin team. And, uh, and the last booker that I worked for in the Florida Territory was Bill Watts in 1974. Wow. And between Ernesto and Bill Watts, there were three other bookers in the Florida Territory that I worked for. Uh, I decided who I wanted, uh, you know, and uh, one of them was the three. And luckily, he was available. And he had been one of those three Florida bookers, like I said, and he'd even booked in Georgia before Tom Ernesto got the job. He was also a pretty darn good heel, man. And, uh, and, and he didn't mind working on the cards as well as booking them. That was always a plus. If you were a booker and you were willing to wrestle too, that, that, uh, that got you the job a lot of times, uh, that, just being that amenable to working with the company. So maybe the most important part of my decision was based upon the fact he had already worked for me in Knoxville. In fact, he helped me with some of the booking in my early years there. He was French-Canadian. He had talent connections in the Montreal, Canada area, which was loaded with tremendous wrestlers. I'll give you two examples. They were right there in Knoxville, huge stars. Ronnie Garvin and Jola Duke came from that <laughs> Montreal, Canada area. And... Uh, and uh, Louis also had a tremendous relationship, a personal relationship with Andre the Giant. They both spoke French. They could <laughs> communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. So down the road, hiring him, there's going to be a connection here that's going to be really important for Andre the Giant and for a guy that's going to come that's going to become the biggest star in wrestling, baby. So most importantly – he could start almost immediately. So it looks like something in 1979 was finally going right for you. So who, who was this booker? Well, his name was Louis Tillette. Uh, he, he was a wrestler, and, uh, and uh, he had wrestled for me in 1975. And he, like I said, he helped me book some in 1975, taught me a little bit about great booking. And when he came to wrestle for me 
and to help me with the book, he brought with him one of the greatest minds in the business, uh, a guy named Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto, who was really big. He, he had a great run for me there in Knoxville, too. So I think that it was all, uh, you know, it, it was about all the doomsday 1979 story that I kind of want to talk about for today. But uh, we got two great cards in this episode, and we got a lot more than that to talk about. Okay, Stud, so which territory do we head to first? North, south, where are we going? Well, southeast of Knoxville, man. And uh, it's loaded, man, this card for this one. Uh, and a very unusual card. It was on January 14th, 1979. It had four opening matches. And then it had an eight-man elimination match with all eight of those guys in those opening matches came back and had an eight-man elimination tag match, basically a singles match in which you uh, you uh, got beat, you went to, the, went to the dressing room. And it was a $3,000 prize to the winner of that match. Uh, the first match of the afternoon, this was on a Sunday afternoon, was Ted Allen against a big old guy named Tony Peters from up around the Kingsport in the Tri-City areas of Tennessee. Second match was Mike Stallings against Butcher Malone. Uh, third match was Charlie Cook, who had come from uh, the Gulf Coast, gone north. Uh, he was taking on a pretty darn good wrestler himself, Jim Dalton. And the fourth match was a newcomer, man. It was his first ever Southeastern match. Uh, Dick Slater was wrestling the mighty Yankee. And uh, Dick Slater, it was going to become a critical character in this upcoming Knoxville War in 1979. Fifth match was that eight-man elimination match I just talked about. And the rule was when a man lost, he went back to the dressing room. The last guy that was undefeated won the money, three grand in this case. Uh, the next match after that was for the held-up $10,000 in the two-ring battle royal from the week before. The four contestants in that match was Bob Armstrong and Crusher Blackwell, and they were against Ronnie Garvin and uh, Bob Orton Jr. And that final match uh, you know, was in the steel cage, and uh, it was for the Southeastern Tag Championship. The champions, Ken Lucas, Kevin Sullivan, were defending mm -hmm. against uh, Tor Tanaka and Ron Wright. That is a tremendous card, Ron. So it must have been a, a lot to work with on the TV to promote it, to set it all up. Well, it certainly was, man. You're right about that. It had a lot of dang talent there and, uh, and some unusual matches. So the TV show opened up with less. It had Bob Orton Jr. and Crusher Blackwell, a huge guy. I mean, he is a monster of a guy, man. Uh, and they were two of the four men that were scheduled to be facing each other within 24 hours. This truck should be wrestling. They were going to be wrestling against each other. And behind them, was the, on the giant screen, was a still shot of the Southeastern Commissioner, Don Curtis, who had to make a decision of the, the $10,000 wasn't given away. The match was stopped the week before. So as soon as Les had run down the card for the day on the TV, uh, Bob Orton Jr. interrupted him, man. Uh, and he wanted to know why, uh, <laughs> why he and this, he called him, a, Les said, he called him a huge fat guy next to him, was instructed to be dressed and ready to wrestle, to be out here on the opening of the show. And, he, you know, and he said he was only interested in the $10,000 he had coming from winning last week's Battle Royal. So uh, Blackwell 
the, you know, Blackwell had never said anything. It's one of his first times they've ever been seen on the TV. He started to say something, but Orton cut him off real quick, and he looked him in the eye, and he said, you don't open your mouth out here. I do the talking. So, so <laughs> Les, Les was got him surprised by that at Orton's response, and, uh, you know, so he bent forward in front of Orton to look at Blackwell, and he asked him, well, what is it you want to say? So Blackwell started to speak, but Orton cut him off again. <laughs> now, so Les kind of gave up on talking to Blackwell at that point, and he told Orton that the video behind him was going to explain why they were there. And uh, later on in the personality profile on that show, fans were would be seeing the actual match where the Battle Royal money was held up. And uh, then uh, Les had the director run the Don Curtis video. Curtis was on the screen there, bang. He started in the process of actually talking. It was a very short few comments from Don. Uh, he had seen the video of the final tag match from last week's Battle Royal for the $10,000 money, big prize. Uh, where two very different teams ended up in the finals against each other. Bob Armstrong and Crusher Blackwell were winners of ring one, and they wrestled against Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. from ring two. And then he saw what happened, man, how the, the, the there was a brawl that got out of control, man, because of the difference in these two teams. They had come up. Then he's, you know, he just he went right straight to the point. And Don was always pretty good about this. He said, you know, I've I've thought about it. I've come up with a very simple solution to how to handle this situation. He said, I'm going to put Bob Armstrong on the same team with Ronnie Garvin, and uh, and make them partners. And then I'm going to have Bob Orton Jr. and Crusher Blackwell be on the other team. And the winner of that tag match is going to split. They get $5,000 each. So Orton didn't seem too happy about the ruling, you know, and he got up to leave the set without saying a word. And so Les said, wait, whoa, 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 come back here. Come back here. We ain't finished, right? So Les called him back and he said there, you know, there's one other demand from Don Curtis that he didn't say on this TV, on the video he just did. And he said that I was to tell you that each of these two two new teams from last week's Battle Royal are going to be wrestling on TV today and that you and Crusher Blackwell are going to be the first match on the show today. So the bell rang and Horton, you know, he mumbled something <laughs> about his displeasure to Les. But uh, he just walked away from his partner and went right onto the ring. Blackwell, who had never said a word yet, got up and kind of followed him to the ring. Like, what the heck? I guess I got to go. So. <laughs> All right. That sounded a little odd, a little bizarre, a little strange, maybe. So if both of those guys were heels, why was there a little problem at all? Did Orton not like Blackwell? What was the story? Well, that's a good question, Dave. You know, uh, it was kind of the beginning, man, of a long, intriguing angle, man, that we're going to work with Crusher Blackwell. Uh, it's going to involve the great Malenko, who's not on this card. He's not going to be on the card again for the next two or three weeks. It's going to involve Bob Roop as well. And uh, they're going to eventually, uh, it's going to eventually explode, man. Uh, and uh, it's going to make a very sympathetic 
figure out of this big 450 pound crusher Blackwell. And he's going to turn into a powerful baby face, man, in the end of this. So this is just the beginning of that angle. So the first tag match on this TV with these two guys, Orton and Blackwell, was a little strange too, as a matter of fact. Hey, you know, uh, Orton started the match and he never tagged Blackwell at all in the match. He finally he took the match to uh, on his own. He, mm-hmm. he finally beat one of the opponents. He used his inverted pile driver. He reached over and tagged Blackwell for the first time, and he got out of the ring and went to the dressing room. Blackwell was standing in the corner, like, what in the heck is this all about? So finally Blackwell just walked in, pinned the opponent, and uh, got out and went to the dressing room too. So we're, I guess we're leaving the fans with a little something to wonder about at this point. Next match featured the introduction of one of the best wrestlers in the sport, man, that was going to be a babyface for the first time in his career. And uh, he was another one of those great young Florida stars, man, that got their start from being friends with Mike Graham. Uh, Eddie Graham owned the territory. Mike was his son. Mike was just about to start wrestling. And uh, he was he went to a high school in Tampa called Robinson High School in Tampa. They had the best wrestling team in the history of Florida. Year after year, they had these great wrestlers that came out of there. Uh, Paul Orndorff is going to be come out of that school, a big friend of Mike's. Dennis McCord, who is going to become Austin Idol, is coming out of that same school. Steve Kern, who is a great wrestler down there in Florida, up in the Memphis Territory, uh, years later, uh, came out of that same territory. There were just three guys. And I think there were a lot more that were involved with Mike Graham, and they got in the business because Eddie Graham liked them. Slater was a tremendous wrestler in the ring. He was great on the microphone. And to be honest with you, Dave, uh, he was one of the baddest men on the planet. <laughs> he was just, <laughs> he was nasty mean. Hmm. You know, and his first ever Southeastern, this, well, this TV show was his first ever babyface match in his career. He'd been working for seven, eight years, and uh, he had never worked as a babyface. And uh, it, the match was spectacular. I watched it. It was unbelievable, man. The, and the guys in the dressing room, they were all watching the monitor, you know, because they knew he had never wrestled as a babyface before, and I, they wanted to see what happened. And the, the guys in the dressing room, because I was back there with them, they were going nuts. He was an instant star in his very first day on television, wrestling as a babyface, something he had never done in his career. Uh, you have to be a pretty darn good wrestler to make that happen. So then the personality profile was on. It was done live. It had Bob Armstrong and Ronnie Garvin on it. And they watched that video from the last Sunday's Battle Royal where they were on opposite teams, but they ended up fighting together, man, against the other two guys in a brawl, man, that just went on for quite a while, man, until the referee got knocked down a few times and he just stopped it and said, that's it. So unlike the Orton and the Blackwell team, uh, they were going to be facing tomorrow. They were very happy. Orton and Blackwell it didn't look like they're going to be a very good team in this tag match tomorrow for $10,000. And uh, I'm sure, you know, you could you could see that uh, Armstrong and Ronnie Garvin, they're pretty happy with their partner, man. It wasn't going to be a problem for them. So Ken Lucas and Kedman Sullivan 
we're in the next match. Uh, they came out wearing their tag championship belts. They, they popped the studio, man. They were really, Kevin Sullivan really was getting over. And uh, it didn't take long to show why these guys were the champions, man. The way they wrestled together, they were really good. And then the last match of the show was with Tor Tanaka and Ron Wright. And they were going to be in a cage match uh, the following day for the belts. The next afternoon in the Coliseum. And uh, Tor Tanaka did the same thing that Bob Orton Jr. did in the first TV match. He never tagged Ron Wright a single time, except one time at the end of the match, after he had both of his opponents laying in the ring, Mm -hmm. he tagged Ron Wright. And old Ron strutted in, and he put his foot on the chest of each one of them, and the referee counted them out. He never (laughs) even got down on the mat to cover them. You know, it was... It was uh, it was vintage Ron Wright and kind of vintage toward Tanaka too, man. The way he took care of him. <laughs> so the interviews in the show were all great, and I expected another great crowd. Maybe not as large as the Battle Royal event, but a pretty full Coliseum again. Oh, no doubt. That's a pretty interesting TV show, Ron. So the next day, you got the Coliseum. What happened there? Well, Ted Allen and Tony Peters uh, they had a they had a uh, time limit draw match. 15 minutes, uh, but it was interesting. Uh, Mike Stallings uh, beat Butch Malone. Charlie Cook won over Jim Dalton. Dick Slater trounced the mighty Yankee man. I mean, he, he was he was at the top of his game. And then he came back in the eight-man elimination match and won that too and got the $3,000 prize for that. Uh, basically, he got over in one day. The Battle Royal Tag Team. For the $10,000 was won by Bob Armstrong and Ronnie Garvin. And then the cage match for the Southeastern Tag Belts was a great match, man. Sullivan and Lucas won the match, and they kept their their belts. But um, when the match was over, you know, and they were due against Tanaka and Ron Wright, and when the match was over and the cage door was unlocked and opened up, uh, an unidentified mass wrestler uh, with Crusher Blackwell Two guys standing right there at the door when they opened them up. One guy's wearing a mask. The other's Crusher Blackwell. They came right in the ring. Now, you know, Sullivan and Lucas had been through a long match. Uh, One of them was bleeding. And, uh, wow, these two guys just attacked them, man. And they left both of them laying. They took their belts and left the cage with the belts. So it was a crazy deal. Oh, no doubt. So, I mean, a really crazy ending to the afternoon. That that had to have left everybody in the Coliseum, I guess you would say, dumbfounded. So what about the attendance for the event? How'd you do? Well, it was not quite what I expected, but it was still 5,000 fans. Uh, you know, wow, that's a great crowd uh, from most any territory. And, uh, and things at the box office were going to start to slow. You know, uh, you know, a slow slide downward, basically, as they probably were all all across the country. Okay, so what do you attribute that to, Ron? Well, Dave, nineteen seventy nine was the last year, and a lot of people won't remember this. The younger fans out there listening to the Studcast are probably going to be a little bit confused here about some of this because nineteen seventy nine was the last year of Jimmy Carter's presidency. And the country was in a bad recession, man. Uh, some of our countrymen were even being held hostage in Iran. Uh, inflation was terrible. It was kind of, and the country was in trouble. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of similar to what's going on somewhat in our country today in a way, right? <laughs> you think? Now, yeah. So, you yeah. know, and, and many fans were obviously in financial trouble as well. So yeah. it was difficult for them, you know, to, to get the money for entertainment was uh, it, it was coming becoming a problem. I remember those times because I was getting a car and beginning to drive and gas prices were like, wait, 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 what's going on? Oh, anyway, so it sounds a little bit like today, to say the least. All right, so that's a great first half of the show, Stud. Let's take our break right here, and when we return, we will ride south into the other territory that had a great card for its fans. That's coming up when this Studcast continues in a moment right here. Hey, and while we take the break, this Saturday is a special day We've been kind of building up to this. You've been telling us a little bit about it, a little something special happening on YouTube. Tell us what's up this coming Saturday, Stud. Yeah, man, uh, I've, I've already recorded this show. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be uh, an Ask the Stud, the first time we've done it. It's going to be on YouTube. Southeastern Rewind is, uh, is the place you go to find it. Uh, it's, it's going to be the first Ask the Stud uh, question and answer show. And uh, wow, the questions are just fantastic. And uh, really, really, fans are, I think, are going to really enjoy this one. Uh, it's going to, we're going to do it this Saturday. It's uh, January 21st, night 2023. You know, we're in a, we're in another decade, man, and in, in, in another century, actually, Dave. So it's pretty hard to keep up with it. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about '79, and now we're at 2023. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, this coming Saturday, I think fans, if you really like these question and answer type shows, this is going to really be a tremendous one. Uh, planning on doing these, Dave, uh, once a month, the third Saturday in the month. Uh, this is going to be the first one. The only place you're going to find it is on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. So you got to go there to get it. But uh, I think it's going to be, uh, I think fans are going to really love these and uh, look forward to the, doing the next one, man. Had some tremendous questions for the first one. And I think uh, this is going to be something that fans are going to really get into. All right. We're going to look forward to that this coming Saturday, Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Okay, so as we get into the second half of this Studcast, episode number 283, Gulf Coast Booker Search. I think we're going to be jumping into that pretty soon. But in the meantime, what, where, and when was the card that we're going to be looking at in southeastern Gulf Coast the same week in 1975 as Knoxville's Coliseum Show? Well, we're going to head back, man, to Mobile again. We're going to go into Expo Hall. It's a great little facility, man, of about 5,000 seats. Uh, uh, and then they had a big building sitting right next to it that was around 12,000. So we're going to go into Mobile's Expo Hall. We're going to be there on a Wednesday night, January 17th, about the three days after the Knoxville cart in 1979. And uh, on this big Mobile card, uh, uh, we're going to be that same card was going to be used in Montgomery on Monday night and on in Dothan on Friday night. And uh, so the opening match for all these three cities was going to be Terry Gibbs versus Gorgeous George Jr., the wrestling pro who was Leon Baxter and a great wrestler in his own right, was facing off against Ken Dellinger, Norvell Austin, 
was taking on Dr. D, David Schultz. Uh, that would be a great match. Uh, Tony Charles, for the first time, was going to be wrestling against Buzz Sawyer. And that match, wow. <laughs> you know, imagine Buzz Sawyer and Tony Charles. Wow. Uh, <laughs> they don't have that kind of stuff anymore, I can tell you that. Uh, and it was a double cage main event on this card. Both matches were going to be in the steel cage. The first cage match was for the Southeastern Championship. Between the champion, the Mongolian Stomper, who was managed by Gorgeous George Jr., was going to be wrestling against uh, the fan favorite man down there, Bob Armstrong. The second cage match of the night was a Southeastern Championship tag match. The winning team got the belts, and the wrestler who lost the fall had to leave Southeastern Wrestling. So that was Robert and Jimmy. They were the champions, and they were going up against Don Carson and the Assassin. Managed by Billy Spears. Okay, so a great six-match card featuring two cage matches, one of which was a loser-leaves match. So how did that TV show go for this one? Well, as I said, you know, in the last studcast, I was about to lose my contacts for information about the Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, Rob's now leaving. He's going to Memphis. Uh, and he's going to be gone for quite a while. Bob Armstrong wasn't going to be down there for many TVs anymore. He was already in the in the Knoxville territory, pretty much uh, spending most of his time there. And so, and I'd been getting a lot of information from those two guys, man. Uh, and uh, so, uh, uh, the, the TV the TV format, and I got thoughts of uh, you know not only did they send me the format, but uh, I got a lot of. A lot of uh, insight about what was happening just by hearing their thoughts. So the show opened up, this show, this TV show opened up with Charlie Pat. He was running down a TV card. And then the cameras backed away, and uh, there sat Robert and Jimmy with him. Uh, and uh, he showed a video with the two of them and Norvell Austin against Carson, the assassin, and Billy Spears in a six-man tag from Mobile, Alabama the week before. Uh, and it had 5,000 crazy fans in the building. And I mean, crazy. They were really crazy. Then no, no doubt about that. It also showed David Schultz coming down to the ring and trying to get in. And uh, that kind of drew the referee's attention just long enough for Carson to load his black glove. He hit Robert with it, uh, busted him open, and, uh, and he got the win. Uh, so both Robert and Jimmy, you know, Thank the Southeastern promoters for giving them this upcoming cage match. Uh, and it, they was also given an opportunity to, you know, to defend their belts uh, they, and, and, and without having any interference from another wrestler, like happened to them uh, the, the event before in which the video in which they watched. You know, if the cage had been there, uh, David Schultz wouldn't have been able to draw the referee's attention. And it also was going to allow them uh, to uh, possibly send either Don Carson or the assassin packing men. So there was a lot of good things going on there for them there. And it could be some bad things uh, if, if, uh, if it didn't go the way it should have. Norville Austin, he came to the set. Well, he got a loud welcome, Rob said, from the studio audience. Uh, Rob said he was becoming a strong baby face in that territory. And uh, so... Uh, 
Uh, Austin, he, uh, you know, Norvell, he apologized to Charlie for interrupting. But then he told Robert and Jimmy that they didn't have to worry about David Schultz getting involved anymore. And they knew you had a cage, but you don't have to worry about it anyway, he said, because he was going to be wrestling on the card, and he was going to make sure Schultz wasn't going to be able to go back to the ring after the match. And uh, he said he planned on humiliating David Schultz uh, in Mobile this time. So the fans gave him another round of applause, and he left the set. And Jimmy and Robert went to, straight to the ring for the first match of, the, of that show. And uh, they got a win. Uh, but not before Billy Spears sneaked out to, this set, out to the set. And he told fans that they better come on down to the building to see those two punks in the ring out over there. Because uh, one of them ain't going to be here next week, you know. One of them is going to be gone, and uh, and he had a big laugh to himself uh, before sneaking back to the dressing room. Uh, then Norvell Austin was in the next match, and he got another TV win, but not before David Schultz had the opportunity to go to the set and say a few things about Norvell, and he compared Norvell to his good friend Charlie Cook saying, you know, he's just another loser like Charlie Cook. And then he said, that, you know, Charlie Cook was hanging around here all last summer and he said, until I got rid of him. <laughs> and now it's Norvell's turn. I'm going to get rid of Norvell Austin now. Uh, so this TV was off to a pretty good start. So what was on the personality profile? Well, it was a special one. Uh, similar to the personality profile Les had done on the, on the two-ring battle royal a week earlier in Knoxville. Uh, this one was done in the Dothan, Alabama arena, uh, Houston County Farm Center, big old building, man. Uh, the cage was already set up around the ring, uh, and they had the big 20-foot ring. Uh, Charlie was inside the cage. They had the cameras. They shot the, the profile from the floor outside the cage, and obviously it was videoed, so it had been videoed on Friday, and this event was going to take, take, take place. The TV was going to be on Saturday. So it was going to be the first double cage night in southeastern Gulf Coast history. And really, it deserved a special attention. And, uh, wow, it turned out to be, uh, Bob said, a tremendous uh, personality profile. So next, uh, next match was the wrestling pro, man, Leon Baxter. And he got his first win on southeastern Gulf Coast TV. And, uh, you know, after I started taking a good look, man, at what was happening down there in southeastern Gulf Coast, uh, we were going to be in need. Rob's going to be gone. Uh, Bob's going to be gone. Uh, we were in need of another good baby face after Bob and, and Rob left. And uh, so I decided, man, to, to tell, Rob, tell Rob down there, you know, I, I want you to push the pro, man. Uh, we got to. He was a great wrestler. He had I'd been a great wrestler in 1976 in Knoxville, one of the superstars that busted Ron Wright's, both of his eyes the hard way, him <laughs> and Dick Dunn back in 1976. So, you know, I had a lot of respect for, for the, for, uh, Leon Baxter. Uh, and, uh, wow. Uh, I, we started to push him, man. So the last TV match, uh, was just that, man. It was the last one for a long time. With, their, with the fans' favorite man, Bob Armstrong. And uh, he'd been the top baby face since the territory opened in March 1978. And he tore the studio up, as always. And he left him standing when he hooked his sleeper hold, just like he'd always done uh, since, he, since 
the day he started there. And he and gorgeous George Jr. Uh, with um, his Mongolian stopper, uh, uh, Bob, gorgeous George Jr. and the stopper finished the show. They shared the last interview in separate studios, and they talked about this upcoming cage match. Wow. Wow. Listen, you know, when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of Leon Baxter, the wrestling pro. And he, to me, he was, boy, and he was a star in the Dothan area. So I, I, I got to talk to you about him someday. All right, uh, rest his soul. All right, another fantastic TV show for real. So what happened the next week in the three major markets that had this card? Well, Terry Gibbs beat Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, the wrestling pro got a good win over Ken Dellinger. Uh, Norvell Austin won by disqualification over David Schultz. Tony Charles and Buzz Sawyer. Uh, Bob Barmstrong told me had an unbelievable 30-minute time limit draw match. Uh, they're going to be coming back against each other with a longer time limit, obviously. And uh, those two guys are going to have unbelievable matches. The Mongolian Stomper won his cage match in every city. And in the last one in Dothan, Alabama, on a Friday night, Bob was stretchered out. Uh, it was a different finish than it happened in the other two cities. Uh, and uh, he, it, was a, it was not a lose-or-leave match. So Bob was still going to be available to return when we needed him. Uh, but, uh, you know, he wasn't going to be spending a whole lot of time in that southeastern Gulf Coast after that. The Dothan match uh, was recorded, this match uh, with uh, Bob, where he was stretchered out because it was the last town, you know, of the cage week. And he had not, uh, you know, he, he hadn't been uh, in any videos. Uh, there had been very nothing practically been uh, in, taped from uh, Dothan because we were in Mobile and taping there pretty regularly. So we hadn't put any emphasis on Dothan. So we shot that video in Dothan on purpose. We all thought it was important to show matches from the major markets because it. He, every time he did that, it made new fans there. And uh, when we did and we got them come down to the buildings, uh, many of them was the first time they ever came to a match. They saw those videos and it brought them down to the building. So the last cage match was for the Southeastern Tag Belts. Loser of that match had to leave. Uh, Robert lost in all three markets, just as Bob had done. Uh, we wanted to get some video from the Montgomery market, just like we did from Dothan, so we can show some different video from different cities. So we recorded that loser-leave cage match from Montgomery, Alabama. And again, because it had not, uh, uh, had not the uh, video had not shown there in a long time, uh, it really uh, helped that town. These videos were not just to have something other than all live matches on the TV show. Saturday. Uh, it was proven that uh, videos help put people in the seats, and uh, mm. that's uh, that's where uh, that's where they were recorded, uh, and that's why they were recorded. That's cool. All right. So because you had the cage match on all of these cards, how was the attendance in those three major cities? Montgomery went up from 3,500 to 3,900 fans. Mobile was up from 4,900 to a total Expo Hall sellout, man, of 5,300. 
somewhere we saw that the, these these sellouts in the expo was going to go somewhere between 5,000 and 5,500. This one was 53. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was told that it probably turned away 1,000 people wow. Uh, wow. in Mobile. Dothan increased from 4,200 to 4,900, almost 5,000. So just over 14,000 fans were in those three cities alone. So it was kind of surprising for me. It was better than southeastern Knoxville. I mean, uh, that southeastern Gulf Coast was still really doing good. Even though you had some crazy stuff going on in your life and some of it was bad news, these crowds had to have made, made you feel a lot happier. So you had good numbers, good attendance, which is good money, right? That's it. <laughs> you know, it sure did, Dave. It made me feel a lot better. Uh, but but there wasn't going to be a lot of weeks like this, man, for me in 1979. So I had to I had to enjoy this one. I really and I'm I'm kind of glad I didn't know what was coming. <laughs> you know, I didn't know uh, that uh, wow, it's going to get really hard here, man. Yeah, you know, sometimes they say that's for the best. All right, stud is hard to believe, but with and with everything we've covered in this stud cast that we're going to have enough time for another learning tree question. That's going to be fun, Ron. Let's get back into that. Mr. Jason Mason. All right. And listen, I don't have experience in Australia. So the word is, uh, the, the name of the town is Adelaide. Adelaide. That's it. I did man. it. All right. Fantastic. I wasn't sure if the the E on the N was going to count. All right. So, so Jason from Adelaide, Australia, ask your father's situation in his territory doesn't sound much better than your own in 1979. So he's all right. He said it good on you, mate for stepping up to help him. It sounds like your grandfather had built a huge business. I'm familiar with many of the American states. Just how many States was your grandfather and his company doing business in and how did he cover it all? So you've got plenty of time to cover as much as you can on that. <laughs> no, wow, man. I tell you, uh, that's a great question, Mr. Mason. Uh, you know, uh, Jason, uh, Jason Mason uh, uh, in Adelaide, man. Uh, I remember your Adelaide, Australia, Jason, uh, very well, man. <laughs> uh, we used to fly there every Monday from Sydney. Wow. Uh, in the month of January, February, and March of 1973, the three months I was there. And that was summertime down under, man. <laughs> Not winter like we have here. It's on opposite side of the old globe and, you know, summer down there. So my grandfather, man, uh, just to get to started on your answering your question here, my grandfather started building his Tennessee territory in the 1930s. And uh, I don't even know why they called it the Tennessee Territory, other than the fact it was where he lived and where his office was, because he was doing business in 11 different states from the 1930s into the 1970s. Uh, Wow, his territory was massive. It was huge. So let's start with the home state of Tennessee. Uh, And now he was also in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. Arkansas, Missouri, Indiana, Kentucky, (laughs) West Virginia, Mm -hmm. Virginia, and Georgia. Wow. (laughs) Basically, he was in every state that bordered Tennessee, and that's a lot of states, and and some of them that didn't border Tennessee. So, you know, that's a lot of territory 
pardon the expression, you know, <laughs> but that is, it covers a lot of territory, literally. So you asked how he covered it all. Well, I, you know, I, I, I come from the largest wrestling family in history. So uh, my grandfather, you know, he covered uh, many of those states using family members, you know, uh, and some of them were wrestlers and some of them were just referees. Some of them were trainers that actually trained wrestlers, up-and-coming wrestlers, so they'd always had talent. Uh, some of them were just local promoters, promoted two or three cities. Some promoted the whole state. Uh, some put up rings. Some worked ticket sales. I mean, uh, and lots of them did all of it. You know, I mean, I kind of did all of it when I was growing up, you know, and uh, I never did any refereeing. But uh, other than that, I did just about everything else that uh, I mentioned there. So, uh, you know, if you were Welch related, you at some time or another in your life were going to be involved in wrestling. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And, you know, and, and as time went on, even those that married into the family were given jobs. And moved to certain states to take care of that part of the country. <laughs> so I mean, we we were we were spread pretty thin over eleven states. Uh, somehow, my granddad managed to make all that work. I don't know how he did it, but uh, wow, uh, he was quite a man. So, uh, and you know, I, I sure do appreciate your question, uh, Mister Mason, and uh, and I hope it. You know, I answered it to, to your satisfaction and. Uh, and good day to you, mate. That is awesome. Jason Mason checking in on the stud cast. That is too cool. And another learning tree question. No wonder they, they listen from all over the world. This coming year with all this going on is going to be one of the best yet. I can feel it coming stud. All right. Hey, I'll tell you what on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud like, and follow to participate in the dueling cards picks and tv pick as well look for his stud cast number 283 that's this one the 283 post on all three sites and make your choices same thing on twitter on twitter find him on twitter ron fuller welch and if you've not already done so follow him there look for this stud cast number 283 post to make your choices on the best card and best tv show a lot of fun a lot of folks are participating participating i think i'll eventually get it right and it's going to be a lot of fun on Twitter and on Facebook. All right. The YouTube channel is Southeastern Rewind. His first YouTube only Ask the Stud question and answer show that we were talking about earlier is going to be this Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Do not miss this one this Saturday, the first ever. This is going to be a great one and a monthly event in the future. You're going to love it every third Saturday in the month. Now, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. His classic old school TV shows are fantastic. There, there are now more than 95 Southeastern, 23 Continental, 12 Gulf Coast TV shows. I'm talking entire TV shows available, all in the order in which they were recorded so you can follow along and know exactly what's happening Hour after hour after hour. Hundreds more are coming. 
Over 50 stud stories are there now. Six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, and 16 chapters of an incredible book, Brutus, and hundreds of hours of other fantastic old-school wrestling. All of this, only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial is still available. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, stud, that's a ton. I don't see how you keep up with it all. Where are we riding in the next one? Well, Southeastern Knoxville fans are going to get another great card, man. Uh, uh, we're going to find out who that mass man was that got into the ring, the, into the cage with Crushler Brackwell at the end of the cage match, uh, the one that left uh, Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas laying and then stole their belts. We're going to find that out. Uh, we're going to find out in the southeastern Gulf Coast, uh, some of the uh, that where we have a new booker. Uh, we're going to talk about his first card that he books. Uh, uh, and it was still full of talent down there, man, that territory. Uh, Tony Charles uh, is going to get his first shot at the Mongolian Stomper southeastern belt. And Jimmy Golden was going to take Norville Austin as his new partner, and they were going to be going after the Southeastern tag belts of Carson and the assassin by managed by Billy Spears. Uh, and so the doomsday 1979, uh, Memphis territory card, we're going to talk about a, a card in another territory next week because my brother is there. Uh, and there's going to be some more of our Southeastern people on this very first card. When Rob goes into Memphis to book there, on Monday, January 21st of 1979. It's going to include, like I said, some of the stars from Southeastern. And uh, and then we're going to have some to talk a little bit about uh, Louis Tillette, the new Gulf Coast booker, about the talent that he's got in mind, and uh, basically the future. Southeastern Gulf Coast, we'll get into that as well. And hopefully we'll have another learning tree question. Uh, I want to thank everybody, as always, man, for listening today. Uh, we really appreciate your support here, man. And uh, please tell your friends and others uh, what we do here and, uh, and take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. Another fun time. Another great one, Ron, for Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains. I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.